0: Okay, we're going to continue our series in Roof today. Um, Those of you who have been here over the summer at all will know that we've been um, going for a series in Roof. And this week we've arrived at Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is really the exciting chapter, I would say that, wouldn't I? But it's the exciting chapter. Um, It's all about redemption. It's all about redemption. And I don't know what that word means to you. Um, If you, I think if you watch films these days, there's a kind of secular idea of redemption in the modern world where most films these days contain some kind of idea of redemption. And it usually involves someone who is um, maybe, uh, he's maybe not quite one of the baddies, but he's not quite one of the goodies. Um, he or she and you know towards the end they make a choice and they may have done something terrible in the past but they make up for it they help the hero um a bit like the famous one obviously being darth vader if you're a star wars fan you know darth vader who's the you know the epitome of, of evil all through, all through the series at the last minute turns on the emperor throws him over things saves his son luke and becomes a goodie. and and all that he's done before is redeemed almost by his own actions But we're going to look at redemption uh, from a biblical perspective today, because from the biblical perspective, actually, we don't have the power within ourselves to redeem ourselves. From the uh, biblical perspective, actually, there needs to be an outside power, someone who comes in and intervenes on our behalf. So, sorry to all you Star Wars fans, but that's, uh, that's the way it is. Okay, so the story so far. So where have we got to so far in this story of Ruth? I mean, Ruth is a book basically of um, amazing providence, amazing the amazing providence of God, a kind of pattern of God um, intervening. Uh, So we see that, for example, there's a famine that drives Elimelech and his family out of Israel. They go to Moab, and this guy Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, when tough gets when things get tough amongst the people of God decides actually I'm going to leave the church I'm going to go outside the people of God I'm going to go to the enemies of the people of God and there his family suffer a tragedy Elimelech dies uh, and then his uh, two sons also die leaving his wife Naomi uh, alone and vulnerable And, and Naomi has two companions they're the wives of her sons one of their names is Ruth and one's Orpah Orpah decides to go home to Moab, but Ruth chooses to stay with Naomi and chooses to go with her and says, your God will be my God. So Naomi and Ruth return to Israel and uh, when they get there, they're in a bad situation. They've got no real prospects in Israel. Ruth basically is on the modern day equivalent of being on benefits. She has to go and glean. She has to go and pick up scraps in the field, pick up... Uh, uh, um, the scraps while there's, the harvest is on, um, and, um, and that's the only way they can survive in, in terms of having any food. Um, but it just so happens that the field she goes to belongs to a man called Boaz, and we saw that, and Boaz is a relative of Elimelech's, and he's very impressed with Ruth, she's actually very impressed with him, there's a little bit of romance blossoming, and um, actually, as a relative of Elimelech, Boaz has the right to marry Ruth, but he's a bit slow off the mark, and we saw that last week with Simon's preach. He's a bit slow off the mark, so Ruth has to go and propose to him. And um, if you weren't here, listen to Simon's talk from last week. So Ruth goes and makes a proposal to Boaz. And so Boaz is really pleased about this. He really wants to marry Ruth, but there's a problem. There's another relative, who's a closer relative than he is, who has the right first refusal to marry Ruth. So the end of chapter 3 leaves us in suspense. Because um, Boaz has gone off to town to find this other relative to find out if he wants to marry Ruth, and um, he says, "If he if you marry you, then good. You, you've got a husband. And if not, I will do it. I'll redeem you." So that's where we're at at the start of chapter four. Boaz is coming into into town to look for his his relative, um, and really, what what we're going to look at today is basically we've got the story. We've got a story of two characters, these two relatives. Um, we've got, we've got Boaz and this other guy who's called the, um, the guardian redeemer. And they both respond differently to Ruth's situation. And that's what we're going to look at today. The first response by the guardian redeemer is a, is a response of rejection. And the second re- results in redemption. Redemption for Ruth. And we'll look at what that means for us. Okay. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Ruth chapter four. If you've got an iPad, and um, we'll read from from verse one to verse three to start with. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down uh, there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, "Come over here, my friend, and sit down." So he went over and sat down. Boaz took. 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. So they did so. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring, it, I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. And the guardian redeemer says, I will redeem it. So here we have our two characters. So Boaz arrives at town just as the guardian redeemer comes along, and that's a sign to us that, again, God's hand is at work. Here's another providential uh, happening. God's hand is at work. God's um, opening up an opportunity, and basically the invitation is to come and see what will Boaz do. And so we've got this, this guy, the, the, the guardian redeemer. He's a relative of Boaz, as we've said. He's the closest living relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. And he is called a, a redeemer. And basically that's his job description. It's not his name, it's his job description. He has a responsibility for Naomi and Ruth in, the, in, um, in their dead husband's absence. He has responsibility for their we- welfare. As as their guardian redeemer, he has a responsibility to buy back the land that's been sold by the family. Um, and we see that in Leviticus twenty five. And he also has a responsibility to marry Ruth. We see that in Deuteronomy twenty five. But not only to marry Ruth, but also to provide her dead husband Marlon with an heir. So that's his job. But so far he hasn't done a very good he uh, hasn't done a very good job of this. He hasn't provided for them. That's why Ruth ended up having to glean. And he can't th- plead ignorance in this case, because when Ruth and Naomi come back um, in, chapter, in, uh, in chapter 1 or chapter 2, back into uh, Bethlehem, the town where they live, it says that the whole town was stirred up because of them. So everybody knew they'd come back. But this guy, for some reason, had made no efforts to intervene or to help them. He'd left them vulnerable. As you know, the book of uh, Ruth is written in the time of Judges, as we saw um, from, from Joe's talk, that uh, in the time of Judges, um, it was a dangerous time. It was a time when um, women were raped or kidnapped and forced into marriage. Women on their own were vulnerable, but he no concern for them and no concern for their future. So you know we talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. The sins that the sins that we commit by the things we do, and then there are sins that we commit by things we don't do. And this guy had really uh, missed the mark in terms of his responsibilities to Naomi and Ruth, and left them in a desperate uh, position. So he's not coming out of the story very well, is he? And um, it reminded me a bit of the Chilcot inquiry, you know, that's going on. That does, never seems to be published into the Iraq war. There's lots of people at the moment whose names are going to come out in the press, going to be criticised by this um, inquiry. And they're probably a bit worried about when the story comes out, what's going to be said about them. And this guy, you know, he's he's not coming out very well from the story of Ruth. But it's interesting that when Boaz calls him over, he doesn't... Um, in the NIV it says, ''Come over, my friend.'' But actually, commentators point out that a more literal translation would be, come over here, so-and-so. That the narrator, for some reason, deliberately omits the the name of this um, relative. I mean, obviously, Boaz would know the guy's name. So, for some reason, the narrator gives him anonymity. And, you know, his behaviour has been shameful, hasn't it? Um, According to the Old Testament. But also, we know that, uh, that love covers over a multitude of sins, doesn't it? 1 Peter 4 tells us. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Not turning a blind eye. In Matthew 18 is clear that we go and we challenge each other where there's sin. Um, and, you know, so we're not saying that, that, that love turns a blind eye uh, to sin, but it does cover over a multitude of sin. My power to forgive those who have wronged me without making a big fuss about it. Uh, my responsibility not to gossip. And, you know, Jubilee as a family, thats uh, I, I just felt, thought that was an, an interesting observation for us. You know, in, as a family, offence is inevitable, isn't it? But how we respond to people who offend us is critical. And as narrators, like the narrator of this story, you know, we have a responsibility sometimes to leave some names out and to give people some anonymity and to, to cover over some sin uh, with our love. So... The first character, this guardian redeemer, we'll call him so-and-so from now on, so-and-so. Officially, he's the guardian redeemer, and he's failed to meet his responsibilities. And then along comes Boaz, in complete contrast. He's a man of integrity. He's a man of his word. He said to um, Ruth, I'm going to sort this out, and he goes straight into town to fix it. He, um, Naomi says of him, he's not going to rest until he's sorted this out. And actually, you know, just as I was, I was reading this and and pondering. You know, a lot of a lot of problems in our marriage, in 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 my marriage. (laughs) Not there, not there are lots. Some problems in my marriage actually result from me not being clear. I think, oh, you know, it's because there's problems because Trudy's nagging me, maybe. But actually, the truth is, there are problems because I'm not doing what I said I would do. And actually, Boaz is a great example for us. Of a man who won't rest and who does what he says he's going to do, and that a lot of problems could be resolved that way, in uh, in in our marriages. But anyway, <laughs> a little bit of honesty. But yeah, respected. So he's 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 Boaz is um, a man of integrity. He's respected. So he goes and he takes ten elders, and these elders of the town are happy to follow his lead. There's something about Boaz. He's respected. Enough that the ten elders, when Boaz says, come and sit here, they do what he says. They'll follow him. And Boaz has a solution. He's not, he's not going to the elders and saying, sort this out for me. He's going to the elders. He has a solutions a solution, and the elders are happy to provide him with backup. And Jubilee, you have elders, and I speak as an elder, you have elders who are willing to follow your lead. You know, if God is speaking to you, then the elders want to provide you with a safe place, want to give you backup. And the key part of this is that, that we're family; that it's relationship. here has relationship with his elders; they trust him. You know, often we have people come to, uh, to to Jubilee with gifted people, and they want to, you know, before they've built any relationship or built any friendship, they want a platform to stand on to preach or to share their gift. But actually, we won't we won't allow that. We only allow that where we've built relationship and friendship um, with people where there's a genuine relationship and uh, you you need to know that because that's uh, important um, in in terms of being a safe place for us all to grow so so um boaz he's a man of integrity he's respected and he's already shown great care for Naomi and Ruth hasn't he he's generously we've seen that through these last few um talks he's generously met their needs he's he's given them food and when Ruth's gone to glean he's given her um, he's made sure that, that that extra was put down for her to pick up, and he's t- and he's um, given her uh, gifts of of food uh, to sustain them, and he's provided protection for Ruth in the fields. He told his men, "Look out for her, watch out for her, don't let anyone lay a hand on her." He's provided her with security, and he's been con- concerned for her future. He will make sure she will get married. That sounds a bit weird to us from in a culture where you know that where we choose our marriages based on love. But in most of the world, actually, where marriages are arranged, that's, complete, that's completely normal. And marriage means security um, for women who wouldn't otherwise have security. So he's he's, he's committed to securing Ruth's future for her. So that, to the extent that, although he wants to marry Ruth himself, he says, if he will do it, good. If this other guy will marry you, good. At least your future will be secure. He's willing kind of, to sacrifice what he wants uh, for her benefit. So Boaz is a good guy, isn't he? He's a good guy, and he comes and he forces this guardian redeemer into a decision. Even though Boaz isn't the 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 the, the official guardian redeemer, he's fulfilled the role anyway. He's fed them, protected them. And he's had a, he's got a, he's made a commitment to secure their future. So he comes and he challenges so and so on his responsibility. And says, look, if you're going to buy the land, buy. If not, let me know. I'm next in line, because I will. And then verse three, we see, oh, so yeah, in verse three, we see that Naomi's selling the land, don't we? And basically, it's a limilex land. It's probably, probably was mortgaged in the famine to buy food or so that they could move abroad. And now Naomi's going to sell the right for someone to use the land on a long-term lease. Because you couldn't sell land indefinitely because of the year of Jubilee when all the land came back to, the, to, to its original owner. So, um, and the guy, this guy in Redeemer So-and-So says, I will redeem it. And at that point, the audience gasps. This, is, this isn't good news for the romance, is it? You know, um, Boaz wants to marry Ruth. Ruth wants to marry Boaz. That's exciting. But this guy says, oh, no, it says, I will redeem it. And the, and, and the, and the audience says, oh, no, he wants it. But luckily, Boaz has a plan. So verse 5, if you're reading, says, Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. He won't do it. He won't do it. So, let's look at the 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 the, the, the um, two responses then um, to Ruth's dilemma. The first one is so and so's response in verse six, and it's a response of rejection. He rejects Ruth. He says, "I can't do it. Am I might endanger my own estate." Why is that? Well, there's a strange law in Deuteronomy that says, basically, if a uh, if if some if a man dies and he's got no children, then his brother or the next nearest relative should marry his wife and provide him with an heir which sounds a bit strange to us but um, you know so uh, this is this is probably a bit dangerous but basically, if so, let's imagine myself and Trudy are married poor Trudy, poor Trudy See, not poor Trudy for marrying me, No, no <laughs> lucky Trudy But poor Trudy, she always gets used in my analogies. So, (laughs) so me and Trudy are married. But let's say we've we've got no kids, and I die. Then my brother has the responsibility to marry Trudy and to have a child with her. Even if he's already got a wife, that's okay. He can still marry her and have a child with her. Now, that child isn't going to be isn't going to be legally his child. It's still going to be legally my child, even though I'm dead. And when that child grows up, he will inherit our land, our house, whatever it is, and carry on my name. And so that brother has has, has raised up an heir for me and allowed that my line to carry on. Does that make sense? Yes. So it's a, it's a strange law, but it was there so that people's legacies, people's names wouldn't disappear from amongst their people. But it's dangerous. So this guy this guy, so and so says, I can't endanger my own estate. It's dangerous because the, the danger is this, so let's say my brother has married Trudy and had, a, had, had, had a, a son that's now got my name but with his own wife they don't, they don't have any children or he has children and their children die then suddenly my son won't just inherit my estate, it will also inherit his estate and his name will disappear from amongst his people and so all of his Possessions would then become under into my estate. So that's the danger. That's why this guy says, "I'm endangering my own estate." There's a danger that your that the son of this dead of of Marlon, this dead guy, will take over all of the estate, and his name will carry on. Marlon's name will carry on, and mine will disappear. And I can't risk that. The closest example, I suppose, we have in our society is where you know you have a you have a millionaire. An old guy who you know, divorces his wife for a model, uh, a young model. And then the billionaire dies and, if, and the family find out that he's left all of his wealth to his new wife, his new model wife. And the, his children and his previous wife have been cut out of the inheritance and all of those millions of pounds go to the, the new wife. That, that's the kind of fear of, of this guy and his family, that all of the inheritance will go to someone who doesn't really deserve it. Essentially, he's saying, I can't do it. I can't provide for Naomi and Ruth. I can't lift them out of poverty. I can't protect them. I can't save them out of their circumstances because it's too it's too costly for me. Love requires a sacrifice of our own interest, doesn't it? And I guess we're all all guilty of this sometimes. We all have our price range, if you like, don't we? We all have our price range in terms of when it becomes too costly for us and i don't know what god's calling you to do i'm sure we've all got things where we feel god's calling us almost to endanger our own estate endanger ourselves for his kingdom maybe you know he wants you to help with alpha but you don't want to endanger your box set time you know you've got a few box sets to watch and you don't want to, you don't want to you don't want to endanger the time you have for that maybe maybe god's asking you to host a life group or to have people over for dinner but you don't want to endanger your new carpet Maybe. Maybe you want to offer to pray for someone at work, but you don't want to endanger your reputation. Or maybe you want to be honest about, with someone about what's going on in your life, but you don't want to endanger the relationship. I don't know what it is for you, but we all have our price range. So the cost for so and so is too high. She's a Moabite, she's a social outsider, and, um, you know, maybe there have been so-and-sos in your life who have treated you as an outsider, who have rejected you in the past for some reason. Ruth is childless. She's a widow. In that culture, she's a failure. She's a failure. She's failed as a wife. Maybe you've felt rejected in the past as, because you've failed at something. Failed at something in the church, in your ministry. And um, you don't feel like there's a second chance for you. She's poor. She's got nothing to offer. And she was a threat. Maybe you feel you've been rejected in the past because other people have seen you as a threat. I don't know. But the good news is that there is one who will not reject you. John 6, verse 37 says, All those the Father gives me, this is Jesus speaking, obviously, All all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. There's no rejection in Jesus. Jesus will never reject you. So, let's look at Boaz's response. It's a picture of acceptance and redemption. So in verse 8, after the guy said, I can't do it, it's too costly, in verse 8, he takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And um, that's a sign of of the legal transaction, that he's giving Boaz the right to marry Ruth. And um, I'm sure Boaz was very pleased with the smelly sandal. But... um, Then verse 9, let's read verse 9 and 10. It says, Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So that his name will not disappear from amongst his family or from his hometown. Today, you are my witnesses. So Boaz isn't put off by Ruth's dis- disqualifications because he loves her. Boaz makes his vow to the elders, and it's probably the closest thing that Ruth gets to a wedding, I'm afraid to say. So those of you who are looking forward to a white wedding, there's no white dress. It's the closest that Ruth gets to, to a marriage. Um, but what a marriage. You've got two generous, loyal, kind, servant-hearted people. You know, Ruth, who wouldn't leave her mother-in-law, who went, who served her, who collected food for her, um, faithfully working hard, and Boaz, this man of integrity, this man respected in his community, who's done the right thing. He was he was honourable when Ruth came to him, you know, on the threshing floor at night, and um, he's you know been true to his word, concerned for her future. These two generous, incredible people getting married—that makes for a good marriage, doesn't it? That makes for a fantastic marriage. Two people like that, um, and I'm sure whoever did their marriage prep. You know, had a, loved it. I had a great time. You know, it was probably one of the easiest ones they ever had. You know. But that's, that, you know, that, 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 that's, that's the kind of marriages that we should be aiming for, church, isn't it? Actually, two servants that want to serve one another, love one another. Um, two loyal, kind, servant-hearted people. That's, a, that's a recipe for success. So, Boaz hasn't just married Ruth. Actually, in this transaction, He's redeemed her. The unwanted widow is now a cherished wife. The outsider who wasn't worth the price tag now belongs amongst God's people and Boaz was more than happy to pay the price for the field to get Ruth. One day she's a beggar picking up scraps behind the harvesters in the field. She's at the bottom of the ladder. She says herself, I'm lower than one of your servants. And, and um, now... She owns the farm. She's part of the family that owns the farm. She's gone from down there to to up there. She was powerless and vulnerable, and now she's rich, secure, and has the authority of the family. And um, we see that Boaz, although he wasn't the official redeemer, he was a natural redeemer. Even though it wasn't officially his responsibility, he took on the legal role of the guardian redeemer. Um, in fact, Naomi says uh, in in Ruth two, he hasn't stopped showing us kindness. And Simon explained that word last week. Um, it's the word said and it, and it and it means kindness, but it, it's much more rich than that. It means love, it means loyalty, it means grace. It means someone with power acting on behalf of the powerless. And that's that's how Ruth had treated them since they came. Um, Boaz had treated Naomi and Ruth since they came back from Moab. And now he's secured Ruth's future. Whereas so-and-so, he had the law, he had the legal responsibility, but he failed to love. But Boaz didn't need the law to tell him what to do. It came naturally to him. And that reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 13, that love is the fulfillment of the law. Whatever commandments there are, love is the fulfillment of the law. We're not called to start with the rules and work out the minimum requirement of what we need to do to love one another. Or, um, but we're called to love automatically. And that's why Jesus told his disciples, didn't he, you, you need a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. And I don't know if you know who the Pharisees were, but they were the ultimate rule makers. They made rules to help them keep the rules. They loved their rules. And the disciples must have panicked and thought, we can never do that. We can never live like that. We can never keep the rules like that. But actually, the truth is, when when Jesus um, spoke to the Pharisees, he accused them of being whitewashed tombs. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. In other words, everything's nice and bright and shiny on the outside, but inside you're stinky. Inside you're dead bones and smelly. It's a bit like when I wash my car it's nice and shiny on the outside but then when you open the door it's still got, you know, empty coffee cups and bits of the park and stuff inside but um, yeah it, they, 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 they were clean on the outside uh, but not clean on the inside and actually we're called to be a, we're not called to be a people who keep the rules on the outside, we're called to be a community of redemption a place of hesed a place of love, kindness, loyalty grace that comes from within and this is possible because we've had a heart transplant, isn't it? If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've had a heart transplant. Ezekiel, 30, Ezekiel 36 tells us that God's given us a new heart. And that he's uh, written his laws on our heart. It tells us in Jeremiah 31. So his laws come naturally. And Romans 5 tells us God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he's given us. So God's love is now in us. And the Holy Spirit works in us, and it works through us, to produce said to produce this love, this kindness, this grace. And I think that's what Paul means when he says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So as Ru- uh, um, Ruth's redemption is a powerful picture for us. Because we were outsiders. We had no intrinsic value to God. We were spiritually bankrupt. We were completely powerless at the mercy of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. But God showed us so much. uh, God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son for us and sent Jesus to the cross. And we're told, aren't we, that Jesus was happy to pay the price. He was happy to pay the price. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorn in its shame. It was a joy for him to go through the trauma of the cross, the pain, the physical pain, and the spiritual torment of taking our sin and shame upon himself. He considered that a joy for the end result of having us with him for all eternity. I don't know if you thought about that, but, you know, at some point, God looked at heaven and he thought, do you know what? Eternity won't, won't be complete unless Darren's here. Yeah? unless Bernice is here. And it was a joy for him. It was a joy for Jesus to go to the cross. And so now, like Ruth, our lives have been transformed by redemption. Now we're seated with Christ. We're adopted into uh, the royal heavenly family. We belong. We have all authority and power in Christ. And we're eternally secure. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you aren't on the right side of that redemption today. I don't know. don't know everybody here. Um, maybe you're feeling like an outsider, maybe you're feeling spiritually bankrupt, maybe you're feeling powerless and at the mercy of Satan. There's a Redeemer here today for you, friends. So now we've been redeemed, we are a people of redemption, aren't we? We're a people of redemption. This redemption works its way out from within us. That love works its way out to those around us. What a great community to be a part of, eh? A redeemed people. People who know what it means to be redeemed. Ephesians 5 says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Just as we've received love, just as we've received acceptance, just as we've received the sacrifice of 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 Jesus Christ, His generosity, His kindness, His grace, so we should be a people who give that out and walk in that way of love. Because we're secure in our identity, our redeemed identity, we Jubilee should be a community where we're willing to pay the cost for each other. We're willing to endanger our own estates for the sake of others, um, and where duty is made redundant by. Love. Amen.